for glory. It's in the matchless name of Jesus. We delight to say as a church, amen. Amen. Thanks, you may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us to um, draw our hearts and our minds to the glory of God. Uh, worship services in churches are a lot like conversations. Um, they're corporate conversations, not so much a conversation that we have with one another, but a conversation that we together have with God. Uh, we come together as his church to uh, speak to him the praise that he is due, and then we come to hear from him and then to respond back to him based on what he has said. What a privilege to come and connect with God in this way. I want to begin our fifth and final uh, sermon ser- in this series of, of messages on uh, the Reformation, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation by looking at what we've called the five solas, what has been called the five solas. That really defines what the Reformation was all about. Sola is just a Latin word that means alone or only, and those five statements you see up on the screen really capture the heart of what the Reformation was all about 500 years ago that is still defined and shaped Christianity today because these truths captured in these five statements are intensely biblical. I'd like to start this morning uh, by taking us all the way back almost 500 years, Roughly 20 years after Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses, the event that started the Reformation, and we've referred to several times in these past few Sundays together, at that point the Reformation was running full steam. It was spreading all over Europe and North Africa. It was going full tilt, and it was touching the lives of many people. One of them, one of the lives that was touched was the life of a young Frenchman by the name of John Calvin. Calvin, uh, like Martin Luther before him, had been raised in the church, the only church that existed at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, and he struggled to live out his passion for God under the teachings of that church. And when the Reformation came to him, when he saw that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it was like a light went on in his head. His whole life was totally transformed, and his heart was set on fire for Jesus. Not long after that, he journeyed toward the city of Strasbourg, some distance away, intending to become an academic. Uh, He wanted to be a theology professor. He wanted to contribute to Reformation theology from a tranquil and relatively peaceful post as an academic, as a professor in a university, a scholar. On his way uh, to Strasbourg, he stopped over briefly in the city of Geneva, Switzerland, and took a brief break there on his way. While in Geneva, Calvin was tracked down by that city's main Reformation preacher who heard that he was in town and went and found him. That was a guy you probably haven't heard as much about. He was a fiery, bombastic, larger-than-life personality by the name of William Farrell. Farrell found Calvin and pleaded with him to stay in Geneva. And not to go on and become a a cloistered professor somewhere locked up safely in the ivory tower of academics, kind of away from the common people. He explained that in Geneva there were far more people whose lives were being transformed by the gospel of grace than he himself could pastor. He said, you need to stay here and take a church. You need to help me shepherd the people of God. And so he explained the need to Calvin. He begged him with all of his um, substantial personality and energy to stay. And in short, he he made the, the best sales pitch he possibly could make to Calvin. But John Calvin was unmoved. No, no, no. I want to go to this nice, peaceful, tranquil, secure life of academia. No, thank you. 
By the end of this conversation, Farrell was so frustrated, he abandoned all sense of, of restraint and pretense that he had entered that meeting with, and he just cut loose on the young, unexpecting, budding theology professor. He blasted him. He beat him verbally so severely about the head that it utterly stunned Calvin. Farrell began calling down the curses of God upon Calvin's academic career, literally, if Calvin would go pursue that career and abandon the Genevan church and all these people who so desperately needed a shepherd. He said, if you want to pursue that life, then may God curse that life and may you rue the day that you left these people in the dust. Okay. Calvin later, looking back on that scene, wrote this. He said, quote, Farrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, upon learning that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, um, came to me, and, and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. And by this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey <laughs> which I had undertaken. Calvin never left Geneva. That conversation utterly changed the course of not only his life, but it actually changed history, which is far more than probably Farrell himself had even bargained for. Calvin stayed in Geneva, spent the next several decades advancing the Reformation and advancing good theology from his position in a church pulpit rather than a university lecture hall. He became a great theologian, not from the, the sort of ivory-towered, cloistered world of academia, but from mixing it up with the sheep of God's flock, so to speak, living with real people who are struggling to know Jesus and follow him better. Now, I share that story this morning for two reasons. First of all, it's just hilarious. <laughs> I, I, history is full of stories like that, and I love that kind of stuff. The fact that it's actually a true story and it really happened just makes it more funny in my mind. So it's a funny story. But the other reason I share it this morning is because there's probably no more fitting introduction to the fifth and final sola than that of John Calvin. The other great Reformation figure. We've said a lot these last four weeks about Martin Luther, or Martin as Jordan calls him. Jordan's on a first name basis with Martin Luther. He calls him Marty in staff meetings. Um, <laughs> I'm not at that level yet, but you know, I'm impressed. Uh, we've said a lot about Martin Luther. I want to introduce you to the final, or the other rather, I should say, of all the people that had an influence in the Reformation, the two great lights were Luther and Calvin. But Calvin in particular is a good one to mention here. Because he did go on to become a great theologian. In fact, not just one of the greatest names of the Reformation area, but frankly, one of probably, arguably, the, the two or three most important theologians in all of church history. His insights were so biblical, so accurate, and so clearly stated that we all still read his books 500 years later. Now, if people publish a book and somebody is still reading it five years later, that's a, that's a feat. Try 500. That's John Calvin. But I, like so many pastors and theology students, have my own copy of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, essentially a systematic theology in my office on the other side of the building right now. We still read him 500 years later. 
But of all of his insights, and there were a great many of them, the most important insight he had was his most foundational insight. The, the number one principle that shaped everything about how he approached the Bible and God. Calvin's theology is built around the glory of God as the purpose for everything. That's the one essential thing of, of all the other distinctives of Calvin's theology. The one thing that really set it apart from so much of the theology that had taken place before his time is this point. The glory of God is the center. Calvin approached the Bible from the perspective of a God-centered universe, and that was his starting point. That's how he made sense of everything in the scriptures. In fact, Calvin said that even in his day, the reason that a reformation was needed the reason that the church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church we call it now, the reason it was teaching so many false things back in the 16th century, the reason its doctrine had gotten messed up was for this purpose, because they had lost sight of the glory of God. He wrote at one point that the church was carried about by so many strange doctrines because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us. Now that's interesting. Of all the reasons you could think of a group of Christians or maybe even an official church starting to compromise its beliefs or, or teach things that are inaccurate, and, and of all the reasons you could imagine for what might lead a church to change its doctrine, I don't know about you, but I could come up with a lot of things before that. But Calvin said, no, no, you know what the number one reason that doctrine changes? It's because we lose a passion for the glory of God, and that starts the downhill process. And so more than anything, Calvin brought the glory of God to the center. Rather than just treating each false idea symptomatically, although he wrote extensively about justification by faith and the nature of the Lord's Supper and all of those other Reformation-era debates, but rather than just treating them all individually, he spent significant time attacking the root cause. We have to love the glory of God if we want to get God right. The fifth and final sola is soli deo Gloria, which is simply Latin. It means for God's glory alone. Everything that we do is for the glory of God alone. That's the idea. Now, that's such a foundational, uh, huge topic. It's very difficult to think about how you're going to preach on it in one sermon, and we're definitely not going to cover it all, but we're going to proceed this morning along the line of three essential questions. Uh, first of all, what is God's glory? We're saying that's the point of everything. What are we talking about? We need to define it. Secondly, why is it so important? Is it an overstatement to say that the glory of God is the point of everything? And then lastly, let's bring that home and say, what, what is the appropriate response to it? Not only from people back in the 16th century, but from people in the 21st century. What is the appropriate or called for response from us to the glory of God? So that's where we're headed this morning. We begin with this first question, what is the glory of God? Which is thankfully a fairly straightforward question uh, to answer. <clears throat> we do need to think about it. Um, it does have an answer, but it's not difficult to figure out in the Bible. And basically, God's glory, you could say, is the outward radiance of his perfections. That sounds a little stuffy, so here's what I mean by that. God's <clears throat> excellence, um, his his worthiness, when that sort of shines out from him and is seen for what it is, the Bible calls that his glory. That's the glory of God. 
It's interesting, in the Old Testament, uh, the glory of God is a topic that comes up quite a bit. Many of you know the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word that is most often used for the glory of God actually means to be heavy, when something is heavy. And, and the idea there is that it's, it's referring to God's, it's kind of his weightiness, his, his substance, you see? His worth is really the idea. God's glory is another way of saying his worth or his worthiness. Everything about God that is worthy of praise, which, by the way, is everything about God, everything about God that is worthy of praise is his glory. And so the Bible can say, for example, when when his strength and his power are seen, that is his glory. Or when God's love is experienced, that is also his glory. Or when his creativity is put on display, all of these things in the Bible are called God's glory. When who he is is seen for how wonderful he is, that is his glory. God's glory is the outward radiance of his perfections. Which leads us to the second question. Why is it so important? And the answer is very simply because it is the point of everything. This was an insight that Calvin made central to his theology, but he is definitely not the first and the only person uh, who stumbled across this. He's not making this up. He got this from the Bible itself. I want to give us just a few of literally dozens of examples that we could cover, but I want us to see a few of these from Scripture just to get kind of our heads and our hearts around where the Bible is coming from here. Everything that God has made, everything that he does, the ultimate end, the ultimate purpose of that is that his excellency would be seen and loved and responded to. Here's just some examples. Uh, God's glory is the purpose of him creating the universe. Uh, This is said all over the place, probably nowhere more clearly than Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Poetically, the psalm writer looks up into the, star, the, the starry sky, and in time before there was light pollution, right? <laughs> he can see stars, he can see the Milky Way, he can see the stunning, beautiful vastness of the night sky, and he says, all of the heavens are shouting the glory of their creator. That's still true today, although not everybody always sees it that way. Back in 1990, you may remember the Voyager 1 spacecraft, which was hurtling away from the Earth. Uh, At one point, uh, NASA turned it around as it was flying away from the Earth so that it was pointed back at Earth and snapped a photograph of the Earth from a distance of about 4 billion miles, give or take a couple hundred million. Um, This was the picture, and it's quite a famous photograph. It's come to be known as the pale blue dot photo. Anybody ever heard of this before? Yes, several of you have, you science astronomy geeks. That's cool. Uh, I'm pretty sure the red arrow was not actually in space. I, I think somebody added that later. But the, the beams of light going across this are just refractions from the sun, which was off the camera there. So those aren't physical objects. That's just the sun. But what you see, and you can barely see it, even in the zoomed-in photo, there's this one tiny pale blue dot that that red arrow is pointing to in the middle of a sunbeam. That's Earth. Just Tiny. A couple of years later, the well-known atheist um, scientist Carl Sagan wrote a book by that title, The Pale Blue Dot, that was sort of uh, inspired by this photograph. Here's one of the things that Sagan famously said about this photo. 
referring to the human race, he said, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, and the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are all challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in a great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. That was Sagan's reflections on what the vastness of the universe meant. Now actually, from the point of view of the Bible, Sagan got it half right. Actually got it half right. In our human pride, we often think we are far bigger than we really are. Boy, that is a resounding and consistent message of Scripture. That is a message with which the Bible would resoundingly agree and affirm. But Sagan missed the other half. And he missed it because he's still looking at the whole thing from the perspective of the human race at the center. And the half he misses will kill you. And it will kill you for all eternity. The vastness of the universe is not a parable of mankind's greatness or privilege. That is true. It is a parable of God's greatness and his magnificence. John Piper puts it this way. If someone asks you, why is there such a meaningless vastness of uninhabited galaxies and only one tiny dot of human existence, your answer should be, this universe is not intended to portray the importance of man. It is intended to give man some inkling of the grandeur of God. And it is an understatement. We look at another famous photograph, most of you have seen the Hubble Deep Field picture showing all of these hundreds of galaxies, each containing countless millions of stars. The the sheer size of the universe absolutely boggles the mind. And you just hear God saying, yeah, you're just barely starting to get it. I made all that. And it's not even that I'm that big. I'm way bigger. The heavens declare the glory of God. God made the heavens to declare his glory. He created a people to declare his glory. We'll move through a couple of these fairly quickly just to get the idea. He says in Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verse 7, uh, referring to the future day where he will save people, he says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why did God create a people? so that his excellence would be seen and worshipped and appreciated for what it is. It is for his glory, the display of his perfections. That's why he saves sinners. Romans chapter 9, verse 23 tells us that God shows mercy uh, to, to people in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even those of us he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Why does God show mercy to people? Why does he forgive sinners like you and me? Ultimately, at the end of it, it's so that his merciful nature would be seen. It's so that people would look at me and say, in heaven one day, God, you let Matt Garino in here? Wow. And I thought you were merciful. You are really merciful for letting that guy in. Praise God. That's what I'll be doing there for all eternity. And before you get too smug, 
That's what you'll be doing there for all eternity too. God's defeat of unrepentant, rebellious man is for his glory. Let me read briefly a couple verses from Exodus chapter 14. The story is well known, but sometimes we miss the dialogue, the language of God. This is Moses about to part the Red Sea and lead the Israelites across as the Egyptian army is closing in to destroy them. Uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. Now listen to the rest of the language. And I will get glory over the Pharaoh and all of his chariots and horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. One of the most fearsome and powerful armies in the world at the time, proud of its military might, able to conquer everything, even the God of these pathetic little Hebrews. And God says, when I squash them like a bug, my power will be seen, and that is to my glory. Jesus' whole mission in coming to the earth is for the glory of God. Just a couple of more. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9 says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order to show God's truthfulness. You see the language there again? Jesus did something so that the character of God would be seen. He's truthful, and, and he, Jesus is going to demonstrate that so that God's character is seen. Truthful how? It goes on. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Why did God come to earth as a man, Jesus Christ? Why did he take on such a lowly, humble servanthood role? Well, for a lot of reasons. One of them was to show that God is someone who keeps his promises. Because centuries earlier, God had promised to save unrighteous sinners through faith. And when Jesus comes to make a way for that to happen, one of the things that gets accomplished is Jesus' actions say to the world, See? God keeps promises. He's faithful. He will do it. He's truthful. He's true to his word. And that, the Bible says, is to his glory. Friends, we could go on and on and on with multiple examples. Everything God does is to display his glory. In fact, we'll conclude with this um, from Romans 11.36, which Jerry read for us earlier. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The reason it is all there, everything that is, came from him. It came into existence through him, and it's ultimately to him or for him. It's all about him. The Bible couldn't be more clear. The Bible couldn't be more clear. The glory of God is the point of everything. Now, Calvin actually made the interesting point that loving God's glory was the key to maintaining right doctrine. If you want to think about God correctly, if you want to know God accurately, you have to love his glory. That, that's basically what he's saying. You have to not only know that his glory is the center of everything, you have to love it. That's the key to actually understanding God rightly. If you don't love his glory, you will misunderstand who God is, no matter how sincere you are. That was his argument. This is what I sometimes refer to as the Copernican revolution of the Christian faith, sticking with the astronomy theme here for a second. 
for years, for centuries, literally, really, really, really smart people looked up at the stars and they tracked the, planet, the, the, the motions of stars and planets throughout the night sky. And they noticed that they tended to all move in kind of the same way at the same rate with some exceptions. And they were always trying to figure out the exceptions and they could never make it work. They never understood how can we explain what we see in the heavens because, as some of you know, we were ultimately looking at it as if the earth was the center of the universe because from our perspective, it looked like it was. You look up in the sky and everything's just orbiting around the earth. That's just a given. Nobody even thought to question that until this guy called Copernicus comes along and says, maybe we're thinking about this all wrong. Crazy idea here, guys, but what if? What if all the planets, especially, that we see in the solar system are not revolving around the earth? What if they're revolving around the sun, including us? What if our perspective is all wrong? We're not the center. Something over there is the center, and we're flying around on the outside, and the paradigm shifted, and suddenly, magic, everything fits. Now, it all makes sense why we see what we see in the night sky. The paradigm had to shift before you could make sense of what you were seeing in the night sky. It didn't matter how smart you were or how hard you tried. You wouldn't be able to make it work if you thought the earth was the center of the solar system. And a very similar thing has to take place within the life of a Christian. I think Calvin was right when he said, if mankind is the center of your universe, you will never understand the Bible. Let me give a couple of examples just briefly. Let's think this through in terms of modern misunderstandings of God and who he is, often even in churches, in professing Christian circles. I would suggest that if mankind is at the center of your universe, you will never understand the Bible's teachings on, for example, sexuality and gender. God's teachings that he created mankind in his image as male and female, the inescapable implication of which is that our sex and our gender are inextricably bound up with one another, despite the fact that our culture insists vehemently that the two are totally separate and have nothing to do with one another. The Bible's teachings about the complementarian distinction between the roles that he designed men and women to fulfill, to represent him as he made them both in his image, these things will always be like gears grinding on gears to somebody for whom mankind is the center of the universe. No matter how hard you try, you won't make sense out of that. These teachings will strike you as um, narrow-minded, paternalistic, power-hungry, the horrible kinds of things we need to get away from. So if we have a mankind sort of centered view of the world, we will be inclined to creatively reinterpret God's teachings and reimagine God in a form that fits our experience and our values because we're the center. And if we're going to connect with God, we have to. And there have been extensive books written to attempt exactly that. One was written several years ago by a young man by the name of Matthew Vines, a very well-reasoned book. It's totally wrong theologically but it goes through the scriptures and reinterprets them in a way that says what God has taught you about gender is all wrong. He actually thinks something else. And it's tremendously influential because if man is the center of the universe, you see, we have to make God fit man. That's the only kind of God we can accept. The Bible tells us God made man in his own image and then mankind returns the favor, making him in our image. Calvin was right. If glory of God is not the center of your universe, you will reinterpret his teachings. Here's another one. We will never understand from a man-centered universe the Bible's teachings on things like hell and God's just wrath against sin. 
And the key word there is just. The Bible makes a big deal out of that word. What that means is that God hates our sin, but more importantly than that, it's right that God hates our sin. It would actually be morally reprehensible if God didn't utterly despise our sin. That's what his just wrath against sin means. From a man-centered universe, we will never understand that. We'll never understand the teachings that God punishes the sin of unrepentant people. And that the fitting punishment for sin is sin's very choice, eternal separation from God. If mankind is the center of your universe, then all these teachings will appear overbearing, overly harsh, and totally unfair. Because if mankind is the center of my universe, then let's face it, deep down inside, I think I'm awesome no matter how unawesome I show myself to be at any given time. Deep down inside, some part of me has to be seen as awesome, and I demand that the universe, verily God himself, acknowledge that, at least at some level. Oh, many people are willing to admit I'm far less than perfect, and maybe I need a little spanking for when I really get out of line. I'm okay with that from God, but at the end of the day, I will demand that God acknowledge my awesomeness. God made man in his own image, and then man returns the favor. The man-centered heart cries out, I will either have God on my terms, or I will not have God. God is not impressed. One more. As long as mankind is the center of our universe, we will never understand the Bible's teachings on the exclusivity of Christ is the only way to have your sins forgiven and enter eternity with God in heaven. The Bible teaches us that our sin means there is no way for us to get to God. We have cut ourselves off from him and we cannot get back to him, not on our own. There is no way unless God himself chooses to provide a way simply out of mercy, which he did in sending Jesus, without whom we would have absolutely no hope. Now, friends, that is the greatest possible news anybody has ever uttered in the history of the human race. That couldn't be better news. That God has made a way for sinners who have cut themselves off from him and don't deserve to be with him and could never get back to him to get back to him. And he made that way at his own expense and he offers it to you. That's terrific news. But to the man-centered mind, up is down and right is wrong. And so we look at the best possible news in the universe and we hate it. We hate it. We see it as narrow-minded, unenlightened, bigoted. Really, to say your religion is the only way? How arrogant, how stupid do you have to be? What a horrible, reprehensible way to think. All religions are seen as the products of man, and our man-centeredness shows in our insistence that anything... In fact, really everything that man tries must work, at least at some level. It must be declared a success simply by virtue of its being an effort of man. We're showing the man-centeredness of our view of life. All roads lead to heaven. God is happy with any religious or spiritual impulse that you pursue. As long as you pursue it with sincerity, however you define it, God is happy. You're in charge. God will just come along. God made man in his image, and then man returns the favor.
Friends, Calvin was right. When we love our own glory more than God's, we see us as the center of the universe rather than him. That will necessarily and unavoidably lead to us trying to fit God into our man-centered universe. And God is too big to fit in a universe that's centered on you and me. There's no room. Loving the glory of God is the only way to correctly understand the Bible and to understand life itself. Which leads us to our final question. What's the proper response the Bible calls for to the glory of God as the center of the universe? Is this bad news? It's all about God. It's not about you. Just deal with it. Your life's going to be miserable. He gets all the credit. Have a great week. Actually, the appropriate response the scripture calls for is joy and satisfaction in God's glory. Not only to acknowledge the glory of God, to agree with that, but to learn to love it because it is the greatest and most beautiful and most satisfying thing you could ever learn in your entire life. Joy and satisfaction in God's glory is what saves us from the view that so many people have of God as just being the biggest bully on the playground, you know? God's like a cosmic thug in the minds of some people when they read what the Bible says. You know, he gets his way because he's the strongest, He wants me to live this way, I want to live that way, and I guess I just have to go along with what God said because he's bigger than me, right? He's like the bully. He's like that kid we all hated on the playground. But his glory is what we were made for, and only in his glory do we find our truest, lasting joy and satisfaction. The Bible is shot through with this. There's basically three responses to the idea that God's glory is the center of everything. We can either deny it, We can submit to it out of duty, or we can delight in it. When we deny it, we don't have agreement with it or love for it, obviously. This is folks who say, I don't care what the Bible says, that's ridiculous, and for whatever set of reasons, I utterly deny that. I do not believe that God's glory is the center of the universe. That's horrible, I want nothing to do with that, and so we just reject God. We don't agree that His glory is the center of the universe, therefore we don't love it, obviously. Another reaction to it, though, and this is one that traps many, many professing Christians who populate the pews of America's churches every Sunday, and that is to submit to God's glory as an act of duty. This is where we agree that the glory of God is the center of everything. We, we know the Bible is God's word. We read some of the verses that I've cited here, and we say, yes, okay, I get it. It's about God. It's not about me. But something deep down inside our hearts still goes, I don't like that. But we stuff that because we know that that's not the right thing to say, especially not in church. And so we put on the right face and we just act like we care about the glory of God and we acknowledge that it's true and maybe even deep down inside we do believe it's true, but we don't love it. Part of us still fights it. We resist it. We don't trust it or him. And ultimately this just leads to legalism. It leads to a Christian life that is fueled by legalism. I really ought to read my Bible more, so I just try harder to do it. There's no delight in it. I just know I should, because that's what God wants me to do, so I do it. I really should go to church and should stop scheduling so many weekends away, so I schedule fewer weekends and come to church because it's what I'm supposed to do, and then I become resentful for it because it's pulling me away from the life I really want. You know, on and on it goes. The dutiful response to the glory of God leads to legalism. The last response is delight. That's not only when I agree that God's glory is the center of everything, but I actually delight in that fact. I wouldn't want anything different. 
This last response is the one that the Bible calls for so often. It's modeled in the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There is nothing else. There's nothing else. I don't want anything else. By the way, he wrote that from prison at a time when he had been arrested for spreading the gospel which got him in trouble with the authorities like it still does in so many parts of the world today. He was incarcerated, and for a time, he wasn't even 100% sure if he was ever going to get released. Turns out he did, in this case. Uh, But he wasn't even sure he was going to get released. He knew he might either die in prison or actually be executed. His very life was on the line, and from that position, he writes these words. For me to live is Christ. I can't lose anything that I really want because I've already got the greatest thing I have, and nobody can take it away, and that is Christ itself. He explains a little bit more fully down in chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. He says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now he's going to go on and tell us what a good guy he was, what a dutiful religious person he was according to the standards of his culture in his day. He was a deeply spiritual and religious person. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I kept all of God's rules to the nth degree. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness that is under the law, I was blameless. I followed all the rules. I did it all for God. But then he undergoes the Copernican revolution of the Christian faith. He realizes it's about the glory of Christ and not him. And now he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of, listen to the words, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's our word, worth, weight, glory, substance. What more could a person want? He says, I look at everything else I had, stuff that I was so proud of before, garbage to me now. What a wasted life, he says. Thank God he saved me from all of that. Now I have everything because I have Christ. The glory of Christ was not something the Apostle Paul just acknowledged or preached as true. It was something he reveled in. These are not the words of the cold, calculating, clinical theologian. These are the words of a man whose heart was on fire for the glory of Christ. To acknowledge and to love the glory of God more than life itself. That is the response the Bible calls for. And that, the Bible says, is where you will find what you've always been after, a deep and abiding satisfaction. It's not just people like the Apostle Paul who experienced that. Fast forwarding 1,500 years back into the Reformation era, the Reformation spread not only across the European continent, but up into the British Isles as well. And when Mary I of England took the throne, she attempted to reverse the Reformation, being the staunch Catholic monarch that she was, uh, through violent means. Mary the first has gone down through the ages known as Bloody Mary, and I'm not talking about the cocktail. This is the actual woman. She had, in her brief five-year reign, over 280 reformers in England burned alive at the stake because they refused to recant their belief in the truth of the five solas. One of the most horrible ways a person could die. Literally cooked alive, tied to a pole in public to be made a spectacle so everybody else would see and fear 
and not follow salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Two of those 280 reformers who were burned at the stake were two men by the names of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. These men were influential reformers in England who loved God's glory more than their own lives. They were arrested and incarcerated in the Tower of London and eventually sentenced to be executed under Mary's reign. When they were pulled out into the square in Oxford, they were, and their, their fires were being prepared, they were able to hold hands and pray with one another for the strength to endure should God not miraculously deliver them from the flames, whatever comes. And then they were lashed to the stakes before onlooking crowds, surrounded by the kindling, and the fires were lit. And as the flames began to lick their legs, Latimer cried out loud enough so that Ridley, being burned just a few, um, a short distance away, could hear words that have been written down and echoed for 500 years since. Sorry, it's hard to read these without getting emotional. He said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They suffered in agony. They were burned alive and they died that day. By the way, the spot where those two men were burned at the stake uh, is also the spot where Thomas Cranmer, another reformer, was burned at the stake a year later. That spot is marked on the street in Oxford. You can go and see it today. I hope to get there someday and see it myself. Three years later, Queen Mary died. And her efforts to stem the tide of the Reformation utterly failed. As soon as she died, the dam broke and the Reformation swept the British Isles. These are not the words of cold, calculated, clinical, self-absorbed theologians. These are the words of men whose hearts were on fire for the glory of God. So much so, that they were willing to see their very bodies set on fire rather than save their little skins for a brief time. In his earth-shattering essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis famously said that our greatest problem as Christians is that our loves are too weak. He wrote, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with things like drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is what's being offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then he closed with his damning indictment, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, one of the greatest threats, perhaps the greatest threat to the gospel in modern suburban America is not a government that's going to lock you up if you believe it. That's a problem in other parts of the world. By God's grace, it's not here yet. No, the greatest threat is acknowledging that God's glory is the, the point of everything, but not finding delight in that. And instead, delighting ourselves in our careers and our retirements, our relationships, and our toys. At its heart, the command to love God's glory above all things is the call to come and die. It really is. To die to the self that has always lived for itself so that I might now live for God. To recognize that the world is not about you and to find out in the process that you discover 
what you were made for and the greatest joy you could ever have. To revel in and delight in the glory of God. So what are you loving? What are you loving this morning? Do you find yourself feeling an internal revulsion to the idea of of God's glory, whether you agree with it mentally or not? Do you find it difficult to confess before God your own sinfulness and your own inability to make it on your own? Every one of us does at some point. And the Bible has a word for it. It's called pride. And pride is the root of all sin. That impulse, that desire to hold back something for myself will kill you for all eternity. Better to die now. Let that old self just die anyway so that you can be raised to a newness of life that is far fuller and more complete than anything we ourselves could ever build. Come confess this morning to God that he's right. About everything, about all of it. About everything he said. The parts I agree with and the parts that grind on me like gear on gear. Come confess especially that he is right about your own inadequacy. And come receive the salvation purchased by him alone at great cost to himself alone and freely offered to you. Come and die so that you might live soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. Father, we come before you as a people desperately in need of having our hearts set on fire by the gospel and by your glory. God, give us the grace to repent of our rejection of you, to repent of the little petty things that we find joy in, and to recognize that you have given us, just like the Apostle Paul, a new lease on life, whereby in finding you as our greatest treasure, we can find life forevermore in your glory, not ours. God, be glorified as voices now are lifted up to you in music as we listen, and then in a few moments as we respond in song. Would you find the hearts of a congregation full of people who are zealous to present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, to die to the petty dreams we have anyway, and delight in the glory of Christ, in whose matchless name we pray. Amen.